Mark chapter 13, we are moving right along in our, our sequential exposition of Mark's gospel. Uh, we want all of our preaching here at Veritas to be what we call expositional, just exposing and applying what God's word says. At times, we might do selective exposition, wherein we choose individual texts based on their subject, their, their topic. And most of the time, we, we do what we call sequential exposition, where we just plant ourselves in, the book of a, in a book of the Bible and slowly make our way through. And that's what we're doing here in Mark's gospel. We are in Mark's gospel for the 53rd week um, now. And, and we're moving right along in Mark chapter 13, which is a something of a contested um, chapter, uh, many uh, different interpretations and, and, and takes on this particular chapter of the Bible. And uh, because of that, we're seeking to approach it with humility uh, and um, as we always want to do, with a, but with a particular kind of humility that, that acknowledges that our interpretation might not be exactly right, but uh, Lord willing, our theology will certainly be right and we can uh, have this text exposed and applied to us uh, as we work our way through it. So we're, we're looking at Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to, to 27. And if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, uh, that would be wonderful. Let's draw our attention to it now. Let's listen to its being read and proclaimed with reverence, with joy, because this is God's word. This is God's word. This is, these are words that came truly from the mouth of Jesus, and it's recorded for us here, as Mark wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark 13, 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would anoint and empower the reading and proclamation of God's word now so that Christ might be exalted in our midst, that your people might be edified in ways that are beyond my, my capacities and capabilities. Would you do that? Would you sanctify your people now in your truth? Lord, your word is true. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, it was Martin Luther who once said that there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. There are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Well, on this day, Mark 13, 24 through 27 draws our attention to that day. And it's good and it's helpful. Our attention, our attention should be drawn to it now. I know... You know, in recent times, and in churches like ours, it seems that the subject of Christ's return and, and the end of days and, and the age to come has fallen on something of, of hard times. It's not a subject that Christians in our tribe, so to speak, talk as much about 
as maybe we have in times past. And you can easily understand why that is if you've been in church circles for any amount of time. You understand that the, the subject of Christ's return and the end-time judgment and the timing of the so-called millennium and the so-called rapture and events surround, supposedly surrounding all of these matters has been so mistreated at times in recent decades among Christians in the church. I, I know that for, for uh, a few of us have grown up in and churches and, and culture and the church culture wherein left behind and uh, detailed end times charts and predictions about dates and timings and scare tactics and all of that have been uh, sometimes so prominent. I know that there's been a lot of bad teaching surrounding the subject of Christ's return in, in many American church circles and, and even in the not so distant past. And so perhaps maybe for, for, for some of us, the response has been in light of that reality to avoid, almost avoid the subject almost altogether and just focused on, on this present life and, and living for, for Christ within this present age. Well, friends, we, we can't do that as followers of Christ. We, we, we can't do that as Christians. For one, the scriptures teach us about the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's a prominent subject in the Bible. It's one we must give our attention to if indeed we're going to be a people of the scriptures. And what's more is that this subject, this subject of Christ's return and the way it's treated in the Bible, it's not meant to give us it's not meant to give rise to speculation and vain curiosity as we often see. It's meant to be a vital source of encouragement and help to us in this life. And the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, he's telling them about the second coming of Christ. And he says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And he says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And he says that we're then therefore to encourage one another with these words. And that's my hope and my prayer this morning is that we walk away from our time together, not, not feeling like we have some more details with which to fill out our end times charts, if you have one of those. Not feeling more confused about which end time scheme is right or wrong. Not feeling self-righteously justified in our views regarding end times positions about the millennium or the rapture or whatever. My desire and prayer for us is that we walk away encouraged in this day because of the reality of that coming day, the day in which Christ will come again in glory to gather his elect from the ends of the earth. And that's the big idea that we see here. We'll see that big idea unpacked as we simply walk through our text this morning. In verses 24 to 25, we see that Christ's return will be accompanied by earth-shattering events. In verse 26, we see that it will reveal him as the powerful and glorious one. And in verse 27, we see that it will involve the gathering of his global elect. First, we see here that, that Christ's return will be accompanied by earth-shattering events. Now, one of the initial questions that might hit us is, why are we all of a sudden talking about Christ's return? So the past two Sundays, we've been making our way through Mark 13, and what we've seen so far is Christ foretell the temple's destruction in Mark 13, 1 and 2. 
And then in verses 3 and 4, we saw Christ's disciples ask him about the specific timing of the, the, the temples and of Jerusalem's destruction and for a, a sign, a particular sign that will signify to the disciples when that destruction would take place. And then we saw Jesus, in answer to their question, launch into this teaching about the timing of the temples and Jerusalem's destruction in verses 5 to 23. And within that teaching, we saw two main blocks. In 5 through 13, Jesus talked about what we were calling non-signs, events and occurrences that didn't indicate the looming destruction of the, uh, of the temple and of Jerusalem, but really just things that are part and parcel of living in a fallen world. And then we saw in verses 14 to 23... Jesus discussed the sign of the looming destruction. And he talked about the great suffering that would take place in the year 70 AD leading up to Jerusalem's destruction. And we saw that that section of Jesus' teaching in verses 5 to 23 was marked out by what we call an inclusio. Bookends that show us that this section of teaching was meant to be taken all together in one serving, dealing with all of the same subject matter. But now that section has come to a close. in in some regard. There's something of a break here. And now we enter into a different section with a different subject matter, although it's related, the subject matter of Christ's return. Now, why do we see this shift in subject? Two reasons. First, the inclusio of the previous passage involved Christ's warning that false Christs would appear, right? If you look at verses five and six, you'll see verse six says, many will come in my name and say that I am he. So people will come in Jesus' name and say, I'm the Christ. And then look at verse 22. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. And so so part of the reason that Jesus seems to shift to talk about his return here is to clarify for his disciples the nature of his return so that they won't confuse the appearance of false Christ with his own appearance at the end of the age. And then secondly, in Matthew's record of, uh, of the Olivet Discourse, this Matthew's record we're talking about now, the same teaching, the Olivet Discourse, we see there in Matthew the two-pronged question recorded for us in Mark 13.4. But it's given with a, a little bit of a different detail, an, an added detail. Remember Mark 13.4? It's this question. Uh, it's recorded as having been, tell us. When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? But there in Matthew 24, 3, if you look at that, the disciples' question is recorded a little bit differently. Matthew adds an additional detail. He records it. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So, so there's the initial question about the temple's destruction. That's what these things means. When will these things, the temple's destruction, be? But then perhaps... The disciples assumed that the temple's destruction would also be accompanied by the second coming of Christ. Perhaps they kind of associated these events closely in their minds. And so in addition to asking about the temple's destruction, they asked about Christ's second coming as well. So Jesus is simply answering their question here as it's related to us in Matthew's gospel. Those two reasons, I think, show us why this shift in subject matter happens. But if you look at verse 24 there, there's clearly a break in subject matter. Jesus says, but in those days, after that tribulation. So he says, but, we're entering into, uh, there's a break here in some respect. And he says, after that tribulation, this tribulation is in clear reference to the siege and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., His return will take place, just generally speaking, he says, after that. Of course, he says, in those days. And some people 
think that that phrase those days is, is referring to the tribulation in and, and 70 AD in the previous verses, we need to understand that that term, those days, is often used in the Bible, not in a temporal sense, but as a phrase that carried end of days connotations. So you can see Jeremiah 3.16, Joel 3.1, Zechariah 8.23, more in the prophets. As an example of this, often in the prophets, the term those days is a signal that we're now talking about end of days. And I would propose that that's what Jesus is doing here. So in those days, Jesus says, there will be earth-shattering events. He says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, what is clear here is that there will be catastrophic, cataclysmic, earth-shattering events that accompany Christ's second coming. Now, just what those events are is not entirely clear. So, so some Christians read these two verses and interpret them with kind of a kind of a literalism, sometimes even a rigid literalism. They believe that the sun will be literally darkened and the moon will literally not give its light and literally stars will fall from heaven or that there will be some sort of meteor shower of sorts. And you know, they might be right. They might be right. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that they are, but I don't think that they are. But if one day we see the sun darkening and the moon not giving its light and stars or meteor, meteors falling from heaven... And Jesus' return while all of this is happening, I'll be glad to change my interpretation of this passage. I, I think there's merit for interpreting this passage that way. There have been times in Scripture when acts of great judgment take place when the sun is darkened. You might think of the plague of darkness in Egypt in Exodus 10. You might think of the darkness that fell upon the earth in Mark 15, 33, when Christ was crucified. It is entirely possible that a literal interpretation of this passage is right. However, you can see very similar language used to speak of specific judgments in the prophets. And what's plain is that language was often figurative and metaphorical for, for a great destruction coming upon a nation that would overturn and decimate the, its kingdom and its government and the reign of its particular king. So you can see this if you look at Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26. When the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about the, this judgment coming upon Jerusalem, which was fulfilled by the invasion of the Babylonians in 6th century BC. No meteors, no sun or moon darkening as far as we know. But there was judgment and destruction. There was an overturning of a government and a kingdom. You can, you can see the same kind of language used in Ezekiel 32, 7 to 8. When Ezekiel prophesied about the coming judgment upon Egypt. And uh, you can see very similar language in fact, some of the very same phrases used in Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, which, uh, in which Isaiah was foretelling the looming judgment upon Babylon, which was fulfilled in 539 BC. Uh, and we'll actually look at that one briefly. You'll see, if you look there, it'll be up on the screen, or you can turn there in your Bible if you want. Uh, it, it's Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. You'll see here that the prophet Isaiah writes that the day of the Lord comes cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the whole earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and lay low the insolence of the tyrants. So you can see very similar language here. 
as in our passage in Mark 13, Isaiah 13 here, as I said before, was fulfilled. It was a prophecy that was fulfilled by the invasion and the destruction and the overthrow of Babylon at the hands of the Medes in 6th century BC. Now consider that passage and consider that that prophecy was, was metaphorical in nature, the sun being darkened, the moon and the stars and constellations not giving their light, things being shaken here, meant that a kind of destruction would soon come upon Babylon in a way that would overthrow their government and their king's reign and their geopolitical nation state. Consider that there was a removal there of a king and a kingdom from their place of power and prominence and a replacement with another kingdom and another king. The Lord had laid low the insolence of the tyrants when he destroyed and judged Babylon at the hands of the Medes. And this destruction that took place there led to a kingdom that opposed the rule and reign of the Lord being laid low by the might of Yahweh. And I think if we're reading Mark 13, 24, and 25 correctly, Jesus is saying, so it will be at my return. Again, it's not entirely clear. It's not precisely clear what will take place before and during that final day. However, what is sure is that it will involve earth-shattering events. It will involve warfare, kings and kingdoms and leaders falling in chaos and destruction. All that opposes God and the reign of his son in the earth, even if it now seems so strong, so certain, so reliable, will be shaken and will fall away like ash blowing in the wind. It will be earth-shattering. And then, as Revelation eleven fifteen says, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. All the kingdoms of this world, led by tyrants and the proud and the pompous, all the powerful kingdoms of this world will be made powerless and will give way to the kingdom and reign of Christ. Now, friends, we should encourage each other with these words. We live in a world in which many are, are so anxious about current events, possible current events, and the reign of tyrants and terrorists. We live in a world where in so many just, just doom scroll through social media, where in global tragedies are reported and predicted nightly on the evening news, wherein, wherein many are wringing their hands, wondering what's going to become of it all. And, and what our passage announces to us this morning is that Christ will bring it all to an appropriate resolution in the last days. He will lay low the insolence of tyrants, the Putins of this world, the Talibans of this world. One day they will be laid low. The, the injustices and civil wars of, of Ethiopia and Somalia will be brought to cease. The powers in countries that, that persecute and oppress our brothers and sisters in Christ in North Korea and Yemen and Iran, they will be laid low and Jesus will benevolently reign over it all instead when he comes again to destroy all that opposes God and his people in the earth. And the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. We should also encourage each other with these words. When we're tempted to feel too much at home in, in, in our earthly kingdom. And the fact of the matter is, we, we, we don't personally live in places like, in a place like Russia or Afghanistan or Somalia. We, we live in relative comfort and peace here, and that's good. That's a good gift. We, we, we were just praying earlier that, that that might continue, right? That's a good gift. It's a blessing from the Lord for which we should be thankful. But at the same time, we should always remember as well that although we enjoy, we enjoy relative peace and comfort here, 
that the United States is not our home. We have no lasting city here. This earthly kingdom is not our country. Our country is a heavenly one, and it will outlast this earthly city of ours. And this might be particularly important for some of us. As, as election day approaches, so much discussion among Christians I, I listen to regarding voting and government and politicians and all this seems to be rooted in this, this fear and this fight for power and influence and control. And of course, we should vote responsibly and vote according to our consciences. At the same time, that we should also be careful to not invest our hearts too much in such matters. And remember that, that this nation and this kingdom is not our home. It will be destroyed and give way to the reign of Christ when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Encourage each other with these words. But then secondly, Christ's return will also reveal him as the, the powerful and glorious one. In the midst of, of all these earth-shattering events, Jesus says that then they will see. Notice briefly the the change in pronouns. So far in Mark 13, he's been saying you. Just for example, verse 14, when foretelling the abomination of desolation prior to the temple's destruction, he says, and when you see, however, he doesn't say you here. He says, then they will see, further signifying to us that we're shifting in subject and timeline. We're not talking about Jerusalem's destruction now, but about an event that takes place further along in the future. And uh, he, he says, he, he says, doesn't say, then you will see, but he says, then they will see. And what he says they will see is the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And we've already seen throughout much of Mark's gospel that Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. As early as Mark 2.10, he's been referring to himself as such. We've seen him do so again and again, eight times so far in Mark's gospel. The most recent of which being... Mark 10, 45, when Jesus says of himself, the, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The, the Son of Man came first, not in great power and glory, but as a lowly servant to be crucified and suffer and die for us. But here, he, he doesn't talk about his suffering and crucifixion as the Son of Man, but of his glorification and power and vindication as the Son of Man in a way that clearly links this title with Daniel 7. Daniel 7 being where we get this title, Son of Man, from. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. This is in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Clearly being echoed here in this passage. It's good that we should read it then. Listen to what it says. Daniel is having a series of visions, and he says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, like a son of man, he came to the ancient of days, as God the Father, and was, prevent, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and, a glory, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is clearly what Jesus has in mind when he refers to himself as the son of man here. And here in Mark 13, that's made abundantly clear as he speaks of his coming with the clouds, with great power and glory. And you might rightly note that Daniel 7, uh, what Daniel sees there is this vision concerning Christ, not his second coming, but his ascension into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. So 
Christ has died. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to suffer and die. And then three days later, he rose again in power and utter defeat of sin and death. And then after the risen Christ was with his disciples for 40 days, teaching, training, guiding them, getting them ready. He then ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God. And Acts 1 records this very event for us, telling us that he ascended to heaven. And when he did so, a cloud took him out of his disciples' sight. And from Daniel 7, we know that with this cloud, he came right into the presence of God to be presented before him and was seated on his heavenly throne where he now possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Right now, Jesus, because of his ascension, is king of all who reigns over all the earth. Every nation, tribe, and tongue is subject to his domain. He is king right now. That's what Daniel 7 is all about. And yet, his reign, in a way, is still veiled in this age, isn't it? Christ is king right now. Matthew 20, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has already been given to him right now. But this age between his ascension and second coming is an age in which his rule and reign is contested, wherein it's still in some ways veiled, wherein what Jesus truly is as the king of all heaven and earth is still not vindicated and recognized by all. But that day will come, and that's what Jesus is speaking of here. Just as the Son of Man ascended with the clouds, he will one day descend with the clouds. In Acts 1.11, an angel says to the disciples, this Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He, will, he went up with the clouds and he will come back with the clouds as well. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that at Christ's return, we will meet him in the clouds. So just as the ascension involves Christ going up with the clouds, So his appearance at the end of the age will involve him coming down with the clouds. And when that day comes, his kingdom and his kingship will no longer be contested. What we find here in Mark 13 is is that on that day, he will return with the clouds in a way wherein his power and glory is no longer veiled. He will be the vindicated king of all. His kingdom and kingship will be unmistakable. All will recognize his dominion and glory with awe. In humility, in his first coming, he came as a servant in all humility and lowliness. But in his second, he will come as the supreme Lord with all power and glory. In his first coming, he came as the meek and mild lamb to be slain for the sins of the world. But in his second coming, he will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king before whom all must bow the knee. And we should encourage each other with these words. For those who trust in Christ, who have trusted in his sufferings for our ransom, who have already bowed the knee before him in humility and repentance, know that he is coming in power and glory and vindication. And when he comes, we will not only see his glory and vindication, but ours as well. Right now, we, we, we trust in and follow something of a veiled king and belong to a contested kingdom. But in that day, our vindication will come. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 1 and 2, he says, the reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Our glory and vindication will come when we see his glory and vindication. Encourage each other with these words. 
And we should also say for those who have yet to bow the knee to Christ and his kingship, know that this day is surely coming. Christ has come and he will come again. And when he comes again, he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. We got not wait until then to bow the knee because then it will be too late to do so savingly. So you're encouraged from this passage to, to repent, to trust in Christ, to bow the knee to his kingship savingly. And then lastly, his return will involve the gathering of his global elect. Verse 27 says, and then he, that's Christ, the son of man, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Here we see that Christ's second coming not only emphasizes these earth-shattering events and his return with power and glory, but that his second coming is salvific for his own. His return will involve a harrowing and shattering of what opposes him, as well as the harvest and salvation of his elect. He says that he'll send out the angels. We saw previously in Mark 8, 38, that Jesus will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We see here that, that these angels will return with Christ, at least in part in order to, to gather the elect of God who are scattered over the face of the earth. That's what this last kind of obscure phrase there means, from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He's saying from the, from the four corners of the earth and everything in between, everywhere Christ's beloved chosen are, from there they will be gathered up when he returns. From everywhere Christ's people are. Across the whole face of the earth, they will be gathered up at his command, at his return. This global people of God will be gathered up in order to worship and adore him forevermore. We see a vision of this, of this day's fulfillment in Revelation 7, 9 through 11. John, the, the revelator, writes there that, After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. There we see this global people being gathered to worship their, their universal Lord and Savior. Last week, we, we saw Christ we're told that all nations would have the gospel preached to them before the temple's destruction in 70 AD. We saw that, that that promise was actually much more limited in scope, speaking of those nations and peoples within the Roman Empire, and how that, that prophecy was fulfilled and shown to be true as the gospel went to the known ends of the earth at that time. However, that promise and its fulfillment was actually a harbinger of this greater reality yet to come in which the gospel would go forth into all the earth and would redeem the elect of God ac across the whole face of the earth, in which all the nations would be discipled so that all nations and tribes and languages will one day gather to adore their glorious Savior. And we should encourage each other with these words. We should encourage each other, how, how so we should encourage each other with these words to be a missions-minded people. To be a missions-minded people. Christ has elect over the whole face of the earth. He has people everywhere who are actually his people. But here's a problem. Not everyone knows, not everyone has heard, and not everyone ha even has access to the good news of the gospel. And so they might hear, 
and might know. They don't have access to that they might hear and know. There are many in this world who are Christ's elect, and many of them have yet to hear of Christ and his redemption. And some time ago, I came across some numbers that show this right now. See that 41.6% of the world belongs to, 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 to ethnic people groups and nations and, 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 and belong to places in which there are little to no believers at all. They call these unreached peoples. And some of these peoples are not just unreached, they're completely unengaged, meaning, meaning that right now there's no one currently trying to reach them with the gospel. Listen, among that 41.6%, only 3% of missionaries go. And of those 3% of missionaries, they only receive 1% of all money from Christians given to missions. That means that 97% of missionaries go to labor among peoples already reached by the gospel, in which there's already a gospel presence. And 99% of missions money goes to labors among peoples where there's already a gospel presence. Now, there's a lot of worthy work going on in the world among peoples already reached by the gospel, but there's a bit of an imbalance there, don't you think? And especially considering that Christ has elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So for this reason, we can just do a little bit of in-house discussion here. Missio Veritas, our missions ministry here, has chosen to focus on unreached people groups in particular. The vision, the praying, the strategizing, the support giving here at Veritas prioritizes, will prioritize what we call unreached people groups. We'll be voting as a church in just a week on our new budget, this, this upcoming year's budget. And you'll see on the missions budget part of it that, that it, part of it will be going to missionaries among unreached people groups in the mission agency that prioritizes unreached peoples. And again, we, we don't do that because there's not worthy work going on among reached peoples in the world. There is, there's just an imbalance there regarding where resources are put in missions. And we want to do our part, even if it's just a little minuscule, teeny tiny, one millionth of a percentile part, we want to do what we can to help correct that balance some. So it relates to us as a church. But, but what about us as individuals and households? We're encouraged here to be a missions-minded people. Christ has elect from the four winds, many of whom have not heard yet. So I just ask you, do your prayers reflect that reality? Do you ever pray for the gospel to go forth in power, wherein Christ is yet to be confessed? Wherein he might have elect who have yet to be called? You could start this week. You really get this. I mean, perhaps during family worship, perhaps during your, your morning devotions, Download the, the Operation World app. That's a great app. It gives you different country to, to pray for uh, every day. It gives you information, religious, political, social information about them, facing them, and, and, and ways for pray for those nations and those peoples. It makes it very easy. You don't have to do a bunch of research or, or anything. So we can pray. We can pray for God's gospel to increase and to move forward globally. And there's a number of other ways that we could Live into that calling. You can get in contact with Missio Veritas. There's more information that could be shared. There's opportunities coming up soon. Find out more. Get involved because we're encouraged here to be a missions-minded people. And lastly, encourage each other here with, just encourage each other with the way that Christ speaks so tenderly of his own here, so sweetly of his own here. Notice that he says that the angels will gather his elect, the son of man's elect. You know, this chapter speaks so much of the suffering 
and tribulations that take place in this world. It speaks so much of the world rejecting God's people. And I wonder if maybe that's why Christ several times here speaks of his people as elect in Mark 13, as his chosen, to remind us that, that while we live in a world of, of immeasurable suffering and hardship all around us, we even while we might be rejected by and hated by others, our neighbors, our, even our own families at times, the Son of Man, the glorious and almighty one, the Lord of all heaven and earth, calls you chosen. He calls you chosen. He he calls you his own. He calls you beloved. He, he descended from heaven to earth in the first place to come and redeem us as his own, as his chosen. And we see here that one day he will descend from heaven and earth again, heaven to earth again, in order to gather his chosen as his own. And he wants to assure us of this. He wants to comfort us in light of this. So as we live in this day, in this, in this day of opposition, in this day of suffering and hardship, in this day of rejection and hostility, we might live as a people in light of that day, as his own people, his elect, who await his return in power and glory. Church, we should encourage each other with these words. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would seal this word upon our hearts. What is true, what is helpful, what is exalting to Christ, what is edifying, help us to take to heart, to take home, change our, our attitudes, our beliefs, our, our affections, our, our lives with what was true and good and what was not true and good. Help us to leave behind and to forget entirely, to wipe it from our memory and all so that we might live more faithfully into what you've called us to from this passage. And Father, we do ask that as we come to the Lord's Supper, this meal of remembrance and communion and hope, that you would use it even now to stir up hope within us for the return of Christ, his coming in glory, when we'll feast with him, then face to face. We pray that you would stir up hope within us and strengthen us to endure until that day comes. In Jesus' name, amen.